Well, we planned during Lent uh, to study several psalms of lament. And I couldn't think of a better place to be in the scriptures given the times that we're in. Now, you won't find a heading in your Bible that designates a psalm, a psalm of lament. That's the category we place them in based on their content. And when we do, there are nearly 50 psalms of lament. As we prepare our hearts for Good Friday and Easter, we've chosen to cover several different psalms of lament. Each of the psalms we've chosen arise from different causes, different reasons to lament. Last week we covered Psalm 38, which is a lament that arises over our own sin. And this week we take up Psalm 10, which is a lament over abuse done by the wicked. Now just a quick comment here, as we are moving to online worship services and sermons uh, recorded beforehand, we're going to try and shorten the sermon because I think that will be more helpful for people being able to watch it. I also want to say, just as a number of you texted me pictures of you sitting together watching, I, I thought both that was great, and then I also thought through the implications of that, that there are families there and children. And so one of the things we're going to do for the next however long we have to do this is to put a very short four, five, six minute family kind of kid version of the sermon at the end. So I don't know what minute that will fall, but if at this point you want to jump to that, um, you can, and then come back and watch this some other time. Um, as parents or adults, however you want to do that. But I want to read Psalm chapter uh, 10. Feel free to pause and, and read it on your own, but I'm going to read it now and then I'll pray that God would be our teacher. Psalm chapter 10, the entire 18 verses go like this. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them, that is the wicked, be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, that is, does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, that's the wicked says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. 
he says in his heart. That is, the wicked says in his heart. God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call into account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account. Till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. And you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And this is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I invite you to pray with me now as we begin to study this passage together. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we study this passage, you would move our own hearts, perhaps from a feeling of your hiddenness to the rock-solid assurance that nothing escapes your purview. That you are on the throne of the universe, ruling and reigning. Remind us of that this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, I shared a realistic, I hope realistic enough, but made up story to illustrate the theme of Psalm 38. I told you about a married couple who comes to a counselor's office. And the first 20 minutes are this nearly unbroken chain of back and forth. One spouse starting one paragraph about how something happened, but then another spouse jumping in and interrupting and saying how things really happened. After 20, then 30, then 40 minutes, the counselor raises her hand and says, I think I begin to see what's going on here. And she looks at the husband and says, Sir, in all of this, what part of the problem is yours? Well, she did this and she did that and what was I supposed to do? He responds. And then the counselor turns to the wife and says, And you, what what part of this situation, what part of this is your problem? And she says, Well, he did this and he did that and what was I supposed to do? And the counselor sighs and wipes her cheeks with her sleeve and says, I I, want to help you, but I can't. 
And the point of that illustration last week was to show that unless you can identify and confess your own sin to God, then, then you can't really begin to heal. However, however, perhaps as many of you listened to that illustration last week, you had objections. But Pastor Benjamin, sometimes it is the other person's fault. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. I've been in ministry long enough to see marriages destroyed, not because two parties share blame, but because one party goes off the deep end. I let the tension of that illustration last week hang unresolved because Last week, the focus is on you and I and our sin before God and how it stinks to high heaven. This week, however, in Psalm 10, we're still concerned with sin, but the sin that stinks something fierce in the nostrils of God is not our own sin, but the sin of the wicked perpetrated against us. And the problem in view, the origin, so to speak, story of this lament is that God, according to the author, seems to hide while the wicked abuse others. In the first 11 verses, the people of God, they, they, they bring their complaint to God. And their complaint is this, judging by what we can see with our eyes, the wicked rule and reign. Read verse 1 again. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The accusation is that the Lord is aloof. He's, He's indifferent. In times of trouble, God's playing hide and seek is a very strange thing to do for the creator of the universe to hide the game hide and seek it's it's a children's game it's it's fun however it's not fun when you're a child and there's a murderer in your house and you're hiding in a closet in your bedroom calling on your father calling your father on the phone trying trying to get him to help, but he can't pick up or won't pick up. That's not fun. A good pastor friend of mine had this happen to his family last fall. He was away on business and a crazy person, we don't have other language for this than that, a crazy person broke into his house and the young son and his mother hid in the bathroom while the intruder pounded on the bathroom door. True story, the police got there just before the door was broken down. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Verse 1 is, is, is a summary of the lament. And then the author goes on in more detail, or to detail out just, just what are those times of trouble that God ignores. The next ten verses describe the character and the conduct of the wicked. 
For the sake of time, I'm not going to reread these verses, but, but I will say this, in verses 2 through 6, we read about the pride and the arrogance and the greedy boasts of the wicked. In verse 4, we read that in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. That is, the wicked does not seek God. And then it says, all his thoughts. So, behind and around and in and through and throughout all his thoughts, the wicked is saying, there is no God. Now that's true. But it might be more helpful to say that it's not that the wicked think there is no God, but rather that there is no God other than me. The wicked set themselves up as God. I'll read verse 6 again. He, the wicked, says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. These are claims of divinity. Not moved? Not changed? Meaning, you're immutable to use theological categories? All generations? Meaning, transcendence? An everlasting nature? In other words, the author is saying in language that might be more familiar to us, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Drawing from that poem Invictus that I read last week. Then the author goes on after verses 2 through 6, down into verses 7 through 11, we read that the totality of the wicked person's being is bent towards evil. We read about the curses of his mouth. We read about that he sits in ambush. We read about the greed of his eyes. We read about how his body lurks like a lion stalking his prey. His mouth, his sitting, his eyes, his jaws, the totality of his being is bent towards wickedness. All the while, he claims, as we read in verse 11, that the Lord does not see, let alone do anything about it. The Lord doesn't even see. He hides. The complaint of the people of God in verse 1 is that God stands aloof. And that is the problem for believers, that God is aloof. But here, however, the wicked see the aloofness of God, the real God, not as a problem, but rather as this window of opportunity that is wide open to them to do evil. In our own day, we might think of those who attempt to price gouge on hand sanitizer. (laughs) Read of someone who bought 17,000 bottles of hand sanitizer in all the surrounding communities, put them into his garage, then tried to increase the price dozens of times over and sell them on Amazon, which Amazon, thankfully, stopped. Consider this one from our own church context. For three weeks in a row, email scammers faked my... Email as the pastor of this church and tried to convince those hundred people, perhaps in our congregation, not everyone got it, a handful did, um, convince them to give them money. 
Now, I, I was able to laugh it off. It was all fairly kind of had a goofiness to it in a sense. But if that were to succeed, it would be wickedness. And consider the way that the imagery here of a lion and lurking, the language that's used in this passage, in our own day might cause some of us to think of the hashtag me too and hashtag church to sexual abuses of those who lurk like lions. It's an especially vile thing when the evil of abuse comes from the hand of those claiming to be priests and pastors. Those who claim to know God but don't know him. And in verse 10, we read, quote, that the helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by the might of the wicked. In other words, the wicked succeed in their murder of the innocent that's described and, or I should say, devised in verse 8. When I read this, I, I think about the origin stories of Planned Parenthood. which I'm not sure everyone knows, Planned Parenthood and the founder, Margaret Sanger, have a grisly origin story. A story with wicked roots in eugenics, which in this case meant the preying upon low-income and ethnic and racial minorities as a way to thin the herd. It was evil, and it still is. In verse 12, the psalm flips. When the people of God sing this psalm, we begin by singing about what what, what we see with our eyes. That is, what we see with our eyes at first is that the wicked rule and reign. But now here in verse 12, the psalm flips. And we begin to sing about what we see with the eyes of faith. Not that the wicked rule and reign, but that God rules and reigns. And this leads to something worth pointing out here in our sermon series through the Psalms of Lament. Laments are not just complaints when they are biblical laments. Laments, the biblical kind, have a trajectory. They move from complaint to trust, just as Psalm 10 does. Look with me at verse 12. Arise, O God. Excuse me. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Wait. I thought that they thought that God was hiding. That he was aloof. They did. And they don't. The deeper trust, the deeper knowledge of the people of God is that God is near. It's like when I use Photoshop sometimes and I'm, I'm working on something and there's these layers to it. And, and when you save the file and you make the JPEG or the .png file or whatever file you save it into. And you, you only see that one image. But, but were you to open up the Photoshop file, there are all these layers. The people of God, the godly Christians know there is more 
than what they can see with their physical eyes. Christians know that God can and he will arise and lift up his hand. The hand of the Lord here communicates his strength and his power. The hand of the Lord is not something to be trifled with. In a UFC fight in January, I'm not sure whether you know Conor McGregor or not, but he won his fight in 40 seconds. <laughs> Probably a handful of you watched it. McGregor is known for the strength of his left hand and also quite a few other things. Being cocky is one of them. If you don't know Conor McGregor, just think Mike Tyson from another era. Kind of like that. But if you know anything about Conor McGregor, you you don't want to trifle with his left arm. I I went and just watched a few of the clips of the fight. I watched the weigh-in. He and I weigh about exactly the same. Um, And I thought to myself, I don't want none of that. (laughs) Um, it, the, the, the left hand of Conor McGregor is not something to be trifled with. Now, incidentally, he won that fight with a kick to the head. But you get, to, you get the point I'm trying to make here. Although I'm not equating the Lord with Conor McGregor. Don't, don't, don't hear all of the overlap there. I'm not implying all of that. I'm just trying to say that the hand of the Lord is not something to be trifled with. As the saying goes, he's not a tame lion. In verse 15, the author writes, break, this is, this is a request of the Lord, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Exhaust your justice, Lord. Now, this prayer request is not so much an eye for an eye prayer request, although it may sound like that. We're in poetry, we're in the Psalms, we're in metaphors here. Again, the arm, just as hand above, the arm here that they request to be broken is symbolic of power. It's the arm that does so much wickedness. To ask God to break arms is to ask God to break their ability to do harm. This is asking God to come to their defense. Now, some of you might be troubled by this language. Who is God to judge and break arms? Or perhaps an extension of that would be, who are we as Christians to ask God to do such things? I can assure you that my friend's son and wife who were locked in a bathroom in September wanted God to break in. And they were not wrong to do so. The passage ends with the people of God asserting their conviction that God is in fact the one who rules. No matter what they see with their eyes, God is the one who rules. In verse 16, the author writes, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. The Lord's kingship is actually for the good of the vulnerable. The fatherless and the poor. When we began this sermon series, we thought it would be good to call it the sermon series, How Long, O Lord, Learning the Language of Lament. I probably would not have said it this way, but when you use the word learn, uh, we tend to think of classrooms and academics, but, but now... Where we're at as a culture and as a society, as a church, 
We're at this time when a virus is stalking the globe. Our learning to lament might might, might be a lot more experiential than theoretical or academic. That's not a bad thing. Because those who engage experientially in biblical lament, not just just an academic or a theoretical lament, but those who engage experientially in biblical lament will also experientially come to know the goodness of God's strength. This is the joyful trajectory laments move us on. From complaint to trust, from sorrow to joy, from fear to rock-solid confidence in the goodness and sovereignty of God. God is not a brittle God. He's not aloof. He is near. He is strong. When Jesus was nearing the end of his life, In Luke chapter 22, that is his earthly life, as he was journeying towards the cross in Luke chapter 22, he referred to that time as the hour of darkness. Verse 53. We have a Savior. If you are a Christian, you have a Savior who has gone before you, gone before us through the jaws of death and come out the other side. In a beautiful twist, The hour of darkness, in the hour of darkness, God was actually breaking the arm of evil. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul describes the gospel and the hope of a Christian in Colossians chapter 2. This is Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 15. I'm going to read that and we'll close. And you, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, you who are sinners, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In other words, in the court of God's justice, we all stand guilty. What are we going to do? This passage says that God took that legal, that forensic guilt that we had and God took it from us and nailed it to Christ in our place on our behalf. Verse 14, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, this debt he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, then what was the result? Well, many things, but this too. He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. God triumphing over wickedness in the Son. God broke the ability of the wicked to do us eternal harm and bring us eternal death. He did that because the sin that brings us eternal harm and death, God took from us and gave to Christ. So, 
If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus, then whether you feel the hot breath of the jaws of the wicked pursuing you, or whether you have fears over the virus, or whether you worry about the financial impact to your business and your livelihood, a very real fear for many of us. Know that God even now, as we read in this psalm in verse 16, is a king who rules forever and ever. I invite you to pray with me as we close. Heavenly Father, though all around our soul gives way, would you remind us that you are our anchor and our hope and our confidence. And though it feels that the wicked rule and reign at times. You are the one who truly rules and reigns. Lord I pray that you would oppress these truths into our heart. In a way that we don't just know them in our heads. But we know them in our hearts. And we live them in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.